The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So as we're in between verse-by-verse expositions of full books of the Bible, today is our second of three Psalms of Gratitude. And today we look at Psalm 145. I think Psalm 145 essentially answers this implicit underlying question. What is God like? And Psalm 145 says, praise God. God's greatness is unsearchable and his goodness is super abundant. So this morning, whatever we come with, perhaps we come skeptical, maybe even doubting. I pray that after today, you'll say, you know, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Perhaps this morning you come discouraged, and I pray through Psalm 145, you'll leave saying, no, great is the Lord. Or perhaps you come today and you're a little apathetic, there's a little bit of indifference in your heart, and I pray you'll leave saying, not only is the Lord great, but he is greatly to be praised. So the title of today's sermon is, Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. It's taken from verse 3 of Psalm 145. If you're using a pew Bible, um, just take it from the, the pew right in front of you and turn to page 621. You'll want to have the Bible open so that you can go verse by verse through Psalm 145, page 621. And I think it breaks down fairly easily. The first half is God's greatness and goodness, verses 1 through 7. And the second half is the acts of goodness and greatness that God does. And that's verses 14 through 21. There's a couple distinctive features about Psalm 145. Let me tell you what they are first. If you have your Bible open, you see at the very top what is sometimes called a superscription above the verse. And it says a song of praise of David. And actually, that's the only psalm out of all 150 that says a psalm or a song of praise. And it begins the final six, Psalm 145 through 150, which are the doxological culmination of the entire Psalter. So at the very end, these final six, the word praise is used 46 times. It's the climax, it's that punctuation mark that exclaims the purpose of the entire hymnal of the Psalms. There's another thing that's distinctive about Psalm 145, and that is that it's an alphabetic acrostic. So each verse begins with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit. It'd be like in English, A, B, C, D. And the reason it goes letter by letter is to show the sequential descriptive praise of the subject. So we might call today's text the ABCs of God's glory. God is so glorious that letter by letter, his name is praised. So now let's begin in what would be letter A or Aleph in Hebrew. Verse 1, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Let me tell you what was immediately convicting and encouraging to me when I was working through this text. Notice verse 2, it says, every day I will bless you. I just want to remind you, did you know that there's a reason to praise God every day? Every day there is warrant to praising God. God is good every day. Every day there's reason to stop and say, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. 
Not only is there a reason to praise God every day, but look at the end of verse 1. I will bless your name forever and ever. And the end of verse 2, I will praise your name forever and ever. Not only is there good reason to praise God every day, but there are more reasons to praise God than can be counted on any day. So it'll go on for the eternity of days. God is so great, there's more reasons to praise him than there is time to praise him. So we will be ushered to a place beyond space and time where the boundaries of time cease to match the infinite praiseworthiness of God. Great is the Lord, verse 3, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In his commentary, The Treasury of David, on this verse, Charles Spurgeon wrote, Worship should be like its object, great praise for a great God. So Psalm 145 will squarely put the spotlight on God, what makes God great. But did you already notice a difference in the way we respond? It doesn't say praise each time. It's a range of different responses. So verse 1 was, you extol God as king. Verse 4, you declare his mighty acts. Verse 5, you meditate on his works. Verse 7, you sing aloud his Righteousness, the, the range is showing all sorts of response to fit this radiantly resplendent God in all of his perfections. I thought what was interesting when you put all the different ranges together is that God is to be praised in outward expressions, but also in inward reflections. God is to be praised in extemporaneous exclamation. Ah, God is just so good but he's also to be praised in sustained appreciation where you meditate and dwell on who he is. And the reason there's a range of response, I think, in Psalm 145 is to show that God is so great that his greatness should affect all of my life. It's why Psalm 103 says this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and maybe you know the next line, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's what Psalm 145 is showing, but it's unpacking it for us. May every part of my life, every part of my being, see how great God is. Patrick Reardon wrote about this. God is to be praised by every sort of sound, every conceivable formulation of our throat and tongue and lips is to be directed to his divine glory. Now verses four through six talk about how his glory reverberates generationally. So look in verse four. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. This past week, I went for a walk and called my dad on the phone, and he sent to me again a photo that has become very important to him. I think of the year it was 2019, and we hosted at our home something of a family reunion for a lot of our family members. And if I remember correctly, there were 53 adults there that day. I have a very good wife who allowed that many people to come over. And then there were all these kids. We couldn't keep track of all of them because I have five and I have four cousins that each have five children as well. It's, it's a wild family for sure. So that photo is something that means so much to my dad and here's why. He sent that photo to me and said, you know, I was, I was pausing and thanking God for the fact that I grew up in a home that was not a Christian home. 
Your mom grew up in a home that was not a Christian home. As far as we can tell from our family tree, there are no Christians that we know of as far back as we can look at. And now that photo has 53 adults who are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus and have all these children who are being raised to put their faith in Jesus. And he said, I called the woman who uh, in like the 1970s was going door to door and knocked on my house and opened the Bible and told me that I could just be saved by putting my faith in Jesus. And I gave her the photo and said, look at what God has done. So you see what this verse is saying? There's this generational blessing that we just reflect. Look at what God did in our family. Now this is what the Bible says to do from cover to cover. In Deuteronomy 6, The Bible says, when your son comes to you and says, why are there these statutes and these laws and these commandments? You will say this to your son. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. That's essentially what my father is telling me and telling my children. I was a slave to sin. I was lost in darkness, and God brought me out. Let me ask you just, do you have a generational testimony to pass on? Look at what God did. I was an eyewitness to it. We, we now today are generations down from eyewitnesses who watch God rescue anybody who would come through a floating boat over a global flood. We today are generations down from eyewitnesses who watch God rescue any who would come through a Red Sea that he parted and they went over on dry land and they escaped their enslavers. We are generations down from eyewitnesses who watch God stop lions' mouths in a den to protect Daniel from his accusers. And we are generations down from God who covered the land of darkness when his own son died in our place. And we are generations down from angels who sat on a rolled-away tombstone and centurion soldiers fell on the ground and they assured the women there, he is not here for he is risen just as he said. D.A. Carson writes on Psalm 145, as we read Psalm 145, our own amen responds to the generational communication of 3,000 years of God's mighty acts and God's wonderful works. God does works beyond our expectation He does things more mighty than our horizon permits because God is God. Verse 5 said, though, I will meditate on his wondrous works. Can I just give you a pastoral idea for this week? This week, your schedule is probably going to change a little bit from normal. You might get a little more time. Can I recommend you use part of it to meditate on God's wonderful works? Maybe with your family. Maybe around Thanksgiving dinner, maybe on a walk, but do something to pause and meditate on how great God's greatness is. But not only is God great, but God is also good. So now verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. To be great is wonderful, but unless he's also good, his greatness is simply terrifying. In the Chronicles of Narnia, I love this interchange with Susan, who learns that Aslan is a lion. She says to Mr. Beaver, I didn't know he was a lion. I'd feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. 
but he's good. Isn't it great that God is good? Aren't you glad that not only is he great, but he's good? See, his might is matched by his mercy. His splendor is matched by his salvation. Praise God, his greatness is perfectly balanced with his goodness. And this psalm is trying to show us that because he's also good, there's every reason for us to be elated at knowing him. Verse 7 in the ESV writes, they shall pour forth, but it's a difficult word to convey from Hebrew. Other English translations write, they shall eagerly utter the memory, they shall celebrate, they shall give testimony. But what they're all trying to indicate is the Hebrew word nevah, which means to bubble forth or burst forth or boil over. The idea is he's been saying how great God is through the first six letters of the alphabet, but now in letter seven, and he pauses on God's goodness, he can't contain it anymore. It just bursts over how grateful he is for all that God is. Daniel Estes writes in his commentary, the psalmist states that God's sovereign greatness is matched by his sensitive goodness. God's might causes humans to respect him, but God's mercy causes humans to love him. Verse 7, though, says that they will pour out a memory. And don't we all know that to talk about the Lord for his character and for his qualities is one thing, But it's a different thing to talk about the Lord as you have experienced him. Do you have a memory of God's goodness in your life? Do you have a memory of what God has done to touch your heart? This is what verse 7 is referring to. Now verses 9 through 13 expand the horizon out on a cosmic scale. Not only is God great and good to each one of us, but God is great and good to all of his creation and for eternity. So now verse 9, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. And now verses 10 through 13 talk about God's goodness even beyond. So all your works shall give thanks to you. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Did you see the word that's repeated? It's the word kingdom. So now in verses 9 through 13, there's this focus on God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is talked about in the Bible in two senses. I think they're both referred to here. The first sense is, is God's broad creative care over everything that he has made. That, that's verse 9. The Lord is good to all. I want to anticipate something you could be confused about. Don't think that means that nothing bad happens in a fallen world. Of course, bad things happen in a world cursed by our sin. But here's what it does mean. Anything good that happens in a world cursed by our sin is ultimately because God in his grace has punctuated the curse. So life exists and thrives and survives at God's gracious hand. Life sustains and teems and has beautiful intricacies at God's goodness. Radiant sunsets sparkle on glistening oceans. Mountains break through pinnacles of clouds in spectacle. And even the smallest pieces of matter that we are currently able to observe demonstrate breathtaking intimacy as they hum with life. This is God's creative care for all. But then verse 10, 11, 12, and 13 are more particular. 
They talk about God's saints rejoicing in his kingdom. And they talk about a kingdom that lasts forever. And this is now the second sense of God's kingdom. The first sense is God's broad creative care for everything that he has made. But the second one is God's redemptive, eternal, and righteous reign in the new heaven and the new earth. This is the kingdom of his dear son. This is the kingdom of the prince of peace whose government has no end. He rules in peace and righteousness forever. And if God has compassionate care to punctuate a cursed world, how much greater do you think his care is for his newly created world in which his son rules and reigns? This is why the saints are so excited because the king has borne the curse of the old world and he will usher in the new. I want to make sure you know how to get in this kingdom. This is the kingdom where we're delivered from darkness and we're ushered into the light of his glorious son. How do you get into that kingdom? And it's amazing how simple it is. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, you cannot enter the kingdom unless you come like a child. In Matthew 5, 3, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to understand this clearly. Here's how you get into the kingdom. You come bankrupt. You come humble. And you ask for the king to receive you based on his salvation, not yours. He died for all our sin. He rose for all our sin. You can't get into the kingdom of heaven if you're middle class in spirit. You can't get in if you're upper class in spirit. You got to come poor in spirit or you don't come at all. Come like a child. Perhaps most of your life, you've been unwittingly enjoying the blessings of God and you've started to attribute them to your own worth. That is impeding you from the kingdom. Confess your dependency and need for Christ and then you can enter the kingdom, the one that the saints proclaim lasts forever. Now verses 14 through 21, the alphabet now moves to what God does. So verses 1 through 13 are who God is. God is great and God is good. But now verses 14 through 21, God does great and good things. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The word bow down in verse 14 is not referring to worship. It's referring to need. This is why some translations translate it bent over or oppressed. It parallels the word falling. This is not people who have earned something or even deserved something. The thing that verse 14, 15, and 16 have in common is neediness and God's willingness to meet needs. Isaac Watts, I'm preferable to. I like the way he put it. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. And tempests rise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. All that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care. And everywhere that man can be, thou God are present there. This is what 14 through 16 is showing. The cosmic ruler is also a daily nourisher, taking care of life mobilizing his regal power for the downtrodden. So if you're wondering if God could love someone like you, I have great encouragement to you in verse 14, 15, and 16. God loves the broken and needy. God cares for those who are hurting. God provides for those who are bereft. Verse 17 
is a wonderful summary of God's character and perfect balance. Verse 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Perhaps you've read Paradise Lost by John Milton. Milton also wrote on the Psalms, and here's what he wrote on this one. Let us with a gladsome mind praise the Lord, for he is kind. He with all commanding might filled the new-made world with light. All things he doth feed, his full hand supplies their need. Let us then with gladsome mind praise the Lord, for he is kind. Verse 18 continues, the Lord's willingness to help those in need. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. All right, if we saw from 14 through 16 that God has a compassionate heart on those in need, now here in verses 18 through 20, we realize how we approach God in need. Did you catch that? So we all have need. How do I receive God's grace? I call on him in truth. I fear him. I cry out to him, verse 19, and he'll save. I love him, verse 20. See the combination? God has a willingness to meet our need, are you willing to go to him? Now, verse 20 brings up something that in the space and time spec that we are on in the continuum is hard for us to read. Verse 20, the Bible says, the Lord destroys the wicked. Let me pause on this for a moment because in our spec on the space and time continuum, we struggle with that. Let me first point out that in almost every other spec on the space and time continuum, they don't struggle with that. Miroslav Volf is a Croatian philosopher, and he observed the horrors of the war at what happened in what was formerly called Yugoslavia. And here's what he wrote after seeing those ravages. He wrote, God is wrathful because God is love. You almost have to be from a certain kind of privileged suburban life to struggle with God judging the wicked. Almost everyone else in history really rejoiced in the fact that God does actually carry out justice on what is evil. But because we do struggle with it, let me take a moment to give some reminders. And I'm going to actually just do it just from Psalm 145. We could go to a lot of other passages. Let's do it just from Psalm 145. In Psalm 145, do you think the major focus is on God's destruction of the wicked? Surely it is not. It is a half phrase out of the full letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And I think that actually shows us something very important about God. God has made his creation freely, and he has made a creation that is able to freely reject him. And yet God has compassionate love even for those who reject him. Throughout Scripture, we see that he is reluctant, patient, and unwilling and takes no pleasure in the ultimate destruction of the wicked. That's how good God is, and that's how great God is. Also, let me show you something from Psalm 145. God's reluctance and his righteous wrath is compassionate and patient in a way that's breathtaking. But even when he does ultimately and finally carry out justice against the wicked, does the psalm struggle with that or does the psalm praise him for that? Look at what follows verse 20. Right after that phrase, 
He says this in verse 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever. So here's how I'd want to push back from Psalm 145. When we challenge the rightness of God judging the wicked, we have already diminished the greatness of God's character. It is required for us to have done that, to even ask that question. In the Bible, the Bible actually doesn't put a lot of emphasis on the brand of wickedness we have. We can have very socially respectable wickedness, like the Jews who looked outwardly religious and were thought highly of. We can have less socially respectable wickedness, like the prodigal son. The brand of wickedness really doesn't matter very much. The point is who the wickedness is against. Wickedness is wicked because God is great and greatly to be praised. Wickedness is evil because it pushes away God's glory. So again, if we were just using Psalm 145, how could we define sin from Psalm 145? I would say that wickedness in Psalm 145 is the greatness of God not praised and the goodness of God not prized. In Psalm 145, wickedness is a heart unmoved by the compassion of God, a mouth silent regarding the mercies of God, and a will too stubborn to come empty-handed to be satisfied by God. See, friends, the greatest wickedness is not what you read on the headline news. The greatest wickedness is a normalization of a life that refuses to praise God. Now, we may do all sorts of little niceties in this world and think that because we've done little niceties that we're good people. This week I read a helpful little article by a local pastor, and he used a rather shocking illustration that I I think was helpful. He said, imagine two terrorists are working together to create a bomb to blow up a school bus. And when they're creating that bomb, the one terrorist forgot his lunch at home, and so the other terrorist shares his sandwich with him. Is that a nice thing? Well, sure. (laughs) But in the context of that whole plot, you can't really be impressed with it. Is it a nice thing to do little nice things in this world? Well, sure. But in the context of not praising a God this great, it's not really impressive. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Hell is what hell is because God is what God is. But don't forget in Psalm 145, even though we are wicked, the overall emphasis is God's compassion and mercy. So see in verse 19, because this refers to you and I. He hears their cry and saves them. So friends, because sin is what sin is, the cross is what the cross is. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly because God is righteous in all his works and kind in all his ways. So as you were here in verse 20, don't be too quick to accuse God of injustice, but also don't be too quick to excuse yourself from the wicked. Romans 1.21 says, because they refused to give him thanks, their futile minds were darkened and their hearts were as well. But friends, Christ has come to die for the ungodly that he might bring us to God. God is so compassionate and mercy and slow to anger and abounding in love that you are hearing this this morning so that you will come and receive Christ. 
But that verse I just referred to, 1 Peter 3.18, that the just died for the unjust, Jesus, that he might bring us to God. Do you know what it says in verse 22? God's patience was manifest. This is 1 Peter 3, so it's not in front of you. God's patience was manifest. And that he waited in the days of Noah. And yet just eight persons were saved. Reading that again reminded me, you know, there's a moment where you need to quit asking questions and just get on the boat, you know. Perhaps you're there this morning. Well, there's one little technical thing that I've left, and I debated all week if I should even bring it up in the sermon. I'm going to take the risk and bring it up. Because if you have the ESV in front of you, at the end of verse 13, the phrase is in brackets. And those brackets are there for a technical reason that I want to explain quickly for your confidence in the Lord. The brackets are there because... That part of the passage does not exist in the best manuscripts and oldest ones we have, the Masoretic text. It does exist in a handful of fairly good extent manuscripts, which is why some translations include it and don't put the brackets. So is it in or is it out? Well, it could be either, and it doesn't seem to make a big difference. Here's a couple things I want to say to you, though. These kind of little things, brackets in a text of the Bible, have caused some believers to be very concerned and confused. And that's why I want to take a moment. There's a very lazy um, accusation levied against Christianity. And the lazy accusation goes something like this. Well, the Bible was just this book that nobody knew what it was. And so a bunch of powerful men were sitting aside and they said, we'll take this one and we won't take this one. And we won't. That is totally historically false. More importantly, we have from the Bible these kind of claims. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Or Matthew 5, 18, where Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If you've heard or read these lazy accusations that you can't trust the canonicity of the Bible, I'd encourage you to push back at those accusations. See how many extent manuscripts of the Iliad and Odyssey there are and the distance between which Homer is attributed to have composed them. It is incomparably different. The reality is the Bible is absolutely reliable and you can trust it. And here's another reason you can trust it. Notice what's in brackets. Does the inclusion or exclusion of that change the truth of Psalm 145 or the truth of the Bible? Not at all. And all of these thousands of variants that people talk about are of that sort and kind. Have confidence in the Bible. But now if you were to ask me, so Josh, should we leave it in or take it out? I think we should take it out, and here's why. I know there are eight alphabetic acrostics in the Psalms, But this is the only one about God's inexhaustible greatness. And as he works through the alphabet, I think the author intentionally left out the word noon, the letter noon, the middle, the middle letter of the 22 of the Hebrew alphabet for this reason. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is what? Unsearchable. You see, you can do the A, B, C's of God's glory, but you can never do the A to Z of God's glory. Even eternally cannot encapsulate how great God's greatness is. And I think the writer intentionally omitted it. So this psalm is answering this question. What is God like? Praise God, his greatness is unsearchable and his goodness is superabundant. 
This morning, if you came with skepticism or doubt, I pray you leave saying, great is the Lord. If you came discouraged, I pray you leave saying, great is the Lord. If your heart felt indifferent, I pray you leave saying, and greatly to be praised. But for all of us, let us come, sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If we wait till we are better, we'll never come at all. So come this morning to the Lord who is great and greatly to be praised. Let's pray together. God, I pray that praise would confirm and establish our enjoyment of you this morning. May we give thanks to the Lord because truly he is good and his steadfast love endures forever. And I pray that everybody here will be able to have a memory of how God has personally been good to them. It's one thing to read about what God has done to others. It's totally different to say, here's what he did for me. And the greatest thing he has done for me is he saved me from my sin. I deserve to be destroyed because I am wicked. I am wicked in heart. I am wicked in thought. I am wicked in action. I am wicked in speech. If God was to examine everything about me, I would absolutely be rightly condemned as guilty. And yet because the Lord is merciful and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love, I was given time and opportunity to hear the gospel. And then I heard that Jesus died in my place. And he rose from the dead. And all I had to do was come as a child, poor in spirit. Perhaps someone this morning will be the first in the generation that will one day be a picture of a high number of those who've come to know the Lord. Thank you for what you've done in my family. And thank you for the generations that can continue. And may we praise the Lord. In Christ I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.